Hi everyone, and welcome to the Nairobi Ideas Podcast, a podcast that gives a public platform to the Kenyans changing the world with their big ideas. Nairobi Ideas Podcast is brought to you by the Mawazo Institute, a Nairobi-based research institute focused on female thought leadership and public engagement with research. I'm your host, Dr. Rose Mutiso, CEO of the Mawazo Institute. We are excited to launch the Nairobi Ideas podcast as part of the 2018 Africa Science Week Kenya. For our first few episodes, we'll be chatting with scientists from our Faces of Kenyan Science campaign. This is a multimedia, multi-platform campaign featuring 20 Kenyan scientists who showcase the diversity of Kenya's contributions to the global scientific enterprise. We'll be sharing stories of their work and scientific journeys through a number of creative outlets, including this podcast. So today our guest is Dr. Stella Bosire, a health professional who works in Kenya and internationally on a range of public health programs that aim to address HIV, tuberculosis, sexual and reproductive rights, and many more. Thanks for being here. Hi, Stella. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, so let's jump right in. So, you know, you are so impressive, quite young, and are doing excellent work at the highest level related to human rights, health, you know, really at the intersection of these two areas. But before we delve into that, I want for the benefit of the listeners and for us to understand you better, to go back into your formative years and kind of learn a little bit about Stella before she became a high-powered public health champion, uh, crisscrossing the globe. You had a very difficult upbringing in Kenya's largest slum, Kibera, and a challenging home life. Could you please tell us a little bit more about that and how these formative years shaped who you are today? So I was born and raised mostly in the slums of Kibera, in a place called Katrekera. I mean, indeed, as you say, it was a bit challenging. You know, sometimes I reflect back and really wonder that how complicated or how complex the environment has, must have been for me as a child. But when I see it right now, I'm really grateful for some of the experiences. My mother had schizophrenia growing up. I, I don't have a memory of my mom being normal. I remember by the age of 11 years, I was the provider. I was the head of my family and I was taking care of my five, uh, four siblings and my mother. So I had five children to take care of. Because literally, nobody employs a child. I had to find other means and ways to be able to get employment. And for me, the easiest way was on drug trafficking, which also I consumed and became addicted to marijuana. And also I went into child sex work because that also was another easier alternative for me to get into. So, of course, this now meant that my education really suffered a lot. I mean, three quarters of the time I was not in school. There are a few times I was in school, I was expelled from one particular school, Kibera Primary. Then I had to find another school, which I was also expelled. Life became so difficult that I was in the street as a chokora, what we call a chokora in a colloquially, who is a street child. Wow, Stella. So, I mean, looking at you now and trying to connect the dots, what, what do you think are the critical moments or the people who offered some kind of escape route that put you to the path of where you are now? I think one of the most important people who I carry and I hold dearly in my life is Mrs. Ocheng. Mrs. Ocheng was my high school, my primary school teacher. And even after I was expelled from school, after being found with 700 rolls of bang, there's something about Mrs. Ocheng which was different and she was more compassionate. And I mean, she listened more or had, had an extra ear, particularly for children like myself who are difficult. And um, this particular moment, Mrs. Ocheng had visited us in my home in Katwekera and she found my mom in her worst episode of schizophrenia. And I mean, we were trying to hold my mom down. She was naked. She'd used the house as a toilet. And then it's at that moment that I think for me was a big turnaround because I was given an opportunity to go back to primary school and do my KCP. If Mrs. Ocheng did not put me back on track, even offering me that opportunity mm-hmm. to go back, despite the fact that I sat for my KCP with a police officer with an AK-47, I mean, manning me, I wouldn't be where I am today. 
I mean, that's amazing. Speaking for all Kenyans and everyone in the world who benefits from your work directly, we are so thankful for Mrs. Ocheng, uh, wherever you are, if she listens to this podcast at any point. <laughs> Everything about your story is quite miraculous. So for example, sitting KCPE in the middle of this turbulent experience and scoring really high marks that got you into one of Nairobi's best schools. What enabled that, you know, when you're completely absent from school, you're on the street, how did you keep up with schooling? How did you manage to show up, do KCPE and perform so well and kind of reopen this chapter of academia, schooling and your whole future? I'll tell you this, even when I was in the streets, even when I was selling the drugs, there's one thing that was deep inside me and that was my love for books. That was my love for school, that I am not in school, yet I desire to be in school. So what I would keep up on, would keep up with comprehension, for example, read all the newspapers. I would look for the puzzles under the back page of the newspapers. Our butcher, Mwendo Aizan, who commonly had this newspaper because it would drop meat on. And there's one thing I believe about maths. Maths is, is a game of numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you think about it, and this is one thing, even when I mentor young, young people, I tell them, don't overthink. Mm-hmm. Let's just move the numbers. It's simple. Sitting in that room, I remember I had a red set, which had been given by my friend, Nancy. She bought it for me. So it's a geometric set with a the protractor. A geometric set with a protractor. Then, but this, you know, the yeah. coffer, the red yeah, coffer. The it, coffer. Was very, it, was, yeah. it was on the Oxford. It was on the Oxford. The exactly. So <laughs> I remember that. So my friend forgot to buy me a sharpener. So I remember sharpening my pencil with my teeth and then um, trying to get it very sharp on the floor and then doing my constructions. I tell you, and this is one thing I see. There is no child out here who we can say that they're not smart. There's nothing like that. I think their abilities are what is different. For me, my abilities were that I would be taught something once and that would be it. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And I think our system is really um, sink or swim. Like you either fit into the learning approach mm-hmm. or you don't. And the people who don't, you mm-hmm. don't have an opportunity to explore the other ways in which you can learn and thrive. Okay, then this ties into a follow-up question, which is something I think a lot about. Um, mm-hmm. Even when I look at my own family, families of friends, like you can have young children who grow up in pretty identical circumstances and really have completely different outcomes. For you, your story is probably familiar to many kids, even today in mm-hmm. Kibira. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between you and them? Is this resilience inborn? You know, why is it that some people make it out and not others? And of course, we the, the world we dream of is one in which everyone has a chance to thrive. But then in kind of our context where there's, there's such limited opportunities, what can we do to, to make more stellars? I think one of the things that we have to recognize is the fact that for me, the opportunities which were availed to me was one. I mean, and I look at when I did my KCP and I went to school and I did so well, the gap that window that I had was that my teachers, one would give me a pair of socks, one gave me a pair of skirts, you know, a blouse and a sweater. Mm-hmm. And I carried all my belongings in a green paper bag, you know, those old paper bags that mm-hmm. had calendars. And, you know, for me, when I looked back and we used to have a saying in Katwekera that if you cross the railway on the right side, then yeah, your life is going better. So every time I'd cross a railway, when I crossed that railway mm-hmm. and I crossed that railway for three months in state, I was living in a room alone, having a bed on my own and having mm-hmm. new experiences. This is experiences. State, of girls, this is high state of girls, yes. Oh, yes, which is right literally next to the state, state house where the president yeah. <laughs> resides. And, and sleeping in a bed alone, having three meals in a day mm-hmm. where I didn't have to worry where the meals came from. I mean, as compared to the past. I mean, I was in heaven. I knew that my one ticket would have been to my academics at that particular point because, I mean, I didn't have any other option. But I look at the kids right now and I look at how we judge our young people and how we are losing talent. We are losing sportsmen, you know, Mm -hmm. for example, we're losing dancers, we're losing creatives Mm -hmm. because you're focusing on that. Mm -hmm. Yep, we have many opportunities that can actually utilize and find and extract and build these people to represent our countries internationally. And Mm -hmm. we're not doing that. 
So for me, my green card, you know that green card was... The lottery. The lottery. The lottery mm-hmm. was landing on my two feet in State House. Mm-hmm. I walked from Katwekera, by the way, to State House. With your box? With, no, there was no box. There's there was no a box. paper bag oh, wow. with all my belongings. That was my lottery. And there's also the issue of resilience mentally. The fact that you stop judging yourself based on your past. The fact that you look at yourself and say, you know what? It doesn't matter where I come from. I think the most important thing is where I'm heading. How do you see yourself? How do you envision yourself? You know, I used to dream there was a girl called Stella somewhere where she didn't have to worry about food. She didn't have to worry about um, the roof leaking when it's raining. She didn't have to worry about being electrocuted because they had tapped into the KPLC wires and they were passing over the, the roof. And when it rains, when it gets wet because of the water, you would you'd actually get small micro strokes. I dreamt of that girl. Dreams are valid. That's amazing and inspiring. And I think one thing I'm also very glad that your story brings to light is really humanizing these um, teachers, um, everyday people that I think in our society we've come to really almost demean, like, you know, people forget that policemen can be compassionate. You know, we kind of have this idea of, oh, teachers, they don't care about the students. I think we've kind of really diminished who they are and the humanity and uh, telling more stories of the ways in which all of these people in our society, even if our education system is broken, even if our criminal justice system is broken, there's such humanity and compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think your story really demonstrates that. And I hope it encourages more teachers, more students, more people in our society to mm-hmm. really see beyond the stereotypes. Kind of fast forwarding to where we are now, I'd like you to walk me and the listeners through who you are, what you do right now, because mm-hmm. I think I'm tempted to say uh, Stella Bosire is a medical doctor, mm-hmm. but that it seems too much of a simplification. How do you describe yourself? What is the kind of one sentence response to what do you do i am a doctor who specializes in access to health from a human rights perspective oh, that's a really good elevator pitch congratulations thank you <laughs> <laughs> you know i've been telling people to do a one sentence response and nobody yes. has congratulations thank you <laughs> okay please um, yes. you've surprised me with such a brief answer please tell me more I began my career about six years ago. I was posted from just finished medical school. So i very excited. I'm a doctor. I'm in the first in the village. Everyone knows we have mm-hmm. our own doctor in Katwekera. And then I'm posted to Moranga District Hospital. I am myself with all the knowledge and the experience I have. And I land in a hospital where I have to improvise. I have to negotiate with the patient about admission. Like, I need to admit you for eight days because you have infection of your leg. Mm-hmm. And if you go home, there are chances that there will be a blood clot that can go to your heart and mm-hmm. you can die. And a patient looks at me. As if death is not the worst of all the threats I can give them. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay if I die. But at this particular point, before I die, I have two children. I have mm-hmm. to go back home. I have to take care of them. Mm-hmm. I have left them with a neighbor. You can't admit me. And I also have my casual job where I'm paid about $3 in a day. That's 300 shillings. The realities hit me. That you see, we look at patients from disease perspective. We don't look at patients from, I mean, putting on the human lens. And now here addressing the social determinants of health. And I knew there was no way I would be a successful doctor if I don't address the other social determinants of health. And that's how the human rights aspect of it Mm -hmm. comes in. In 2013, I was fortunate enough to be appointed by the president to sit in the HIV tribunal. And that again also jolted me into the space of human rights, but Mm -hmm. particularly focusing on people living with HIV, both affected and infected. Mm -hmm. And in addressing what are the human rights violations, either in access to health, when they Mm -hmm. come to me, I stigmatize. Or when they are employed and they lose their job. Or when before they get employed, someone insists, you know, we need to have a pre-employment HIV test before we mm-hmm. get you on board or when an insurance refuses to give them a medical cover or pays their bill because of a HIV status and I realized that the success of the fight against HIV in this country 
One of the main ingredients was actually the enactment of this act in 2006. Just can you tell us a little bit more it's about this act? The HIV and AIDS Control and Prevention Act. Mm-hmm. One of the key provisions that addresses issues around stigma mm-hmm. and addresses issues around disclosure. It mm-hmm. addresses issues around privacy, mm-hmm. addresses issues around access to social services like education, health, you know. For any forced disclosure, you want to employ someone and you say you must have a HIV test. Even going to school, mm-hmm. it's actually against health because that's coercion. Okay. I see. And so, I mean, how many Kenyans know that this is in effect? Because I hear stories all the time mm. of um, mm. forced disclosures, free mm. testing and mm. things like that. How do you, as part of your work, to infuse the human rights in public health, ensure that there's implementation and, 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 and enforcement? The, and that's one of the things that we've been, I mean, I've been trying to really um, galavant this world, is that we cannot just talk about health from a curative, promotive perspective and we don't look at the rights of evolution. And what we've done in the HIV tribunal is that we increased a lot of awareness at the county levels. Mm-hmm. We have a civil society organization that we work with who help anyone who has been violated to be able to bring out their cases. Unfortunately, it's a, a legislative body which cannot be devolved. Mm-hmm. And the, the tribunal only sits in Nairobi. And that's the only unfortunate thing. But so far, we've had more than 200 successful cases. And some of these cases, if you read through them, you'll actually see how people's lives are changing. That's really great work. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Drilling a little bit deeper in your work at the intersection of human rights mm-hmm. and public health. Mm-hmm. So you work with various groups that are kind of living on the fringes of society, yes. um, including like adolescents in, in poverty backgrounds, yes. um, and especially sexual minorities, yes. for example. Yeah. And this probably pits you against a wide range of intractable cultural barriers, bureaucratic barriers, you name it. So what keeps you hopeful in this fight for justice, for dignity, for health and prosperity in these communities? One of the greatest things that we have to realize is that our constitution is non-discriminatory. Our constitution does not discriminate based on color, based on race, based on sex, mm-hmm. based on gender, based on marital status, economic level. It doesn't. So when I look at my patients, every time my patient walks into me, they're my patients. They're not, she's like, they're not a kikuyu. They're not a gay man. They're not a transgender woman. They're my patients. And I want my patients to have such confidence that they can actually speak to me about their health issues and I can address them. However, unfortunately, because of the social cultural issues and the conflict that exist, including the political connotations that you hear about transphobia and homophobia, that mm-hmm. becomes really difficult. But the reality Kenyans have to live with is that the more this population is treated wrongly, this population is violated physically, mm-hmm. they're emotionally. Some of them are even neglected by their families. Mm-hmm. I know enough have gone into hiding. What they are doing is that they are pushing them towards ill health. What is health? WHO says this. It's not just physical mm-hmm. or it's not. It's a state of, of completeness in health that looks at physical, mental and social well-being. The social side is that someone has lost their job, someone has lost their housing. Mm-hmm. So what happens to them? They have to go into risky behaviors. Mm-hmm. Now that brings me back into the core of my work around HIV tuberculosis. Is that this individual is more likely mm-hmm. going to go into transactional sex. Yeah, this was a brilliant person. Mm-hmm. This was somebody who had a career. But because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, they've actually been isolated. What happens to such a patient? They go into hiding. They will not even come to Dr. Bushiri. Now let me give you some numbers. The HIV prevalence in Kenya has come down from about 10 to 15 in the 90s. We have about 1.5 million Kenyans living in HIV and on ARV, ARTs. If you yeah. were to look at the HIV prevalence among men who have sex with men, it's actually 18%, three times the national level. Mm-hmm. And if you were to look at transgender, we estimate it according to WHO to about 23%. Other minorities are like sex workers, not prostitutes, not prostitutes. You have to really realize that this is work. Mm-hmm. There are jurisdictions out here, this were like uh, in, in Amsterdam, yeah. which this is recognized work. And yeah. people have to really give dignity to this work. Uh-huh. And their HIV prevalence is up to 28%. So when we push them into hiding, when you push when you fe- we push them into fear, what are we doing? 
Yeah. Yet we are targeting globally we're, 2030 yeah. where we'll have zero infection rate. We're basically um, making it impossible to meet our target. Hearing you say this gives me a lot of hope. But in your profession, how many of your peers, other medical and public health professionals, do you think share this kind of broad, comprehensive view of things that is kind of justice-centric, human rights-centric? Do you see your fellow health professionals sharing the same goals or are you are you really unique? I mean, recently we had a court case about forceful anal examination. And two, this with the National... Uh, yeah. National Gay Lesbian Human Rights Commission. Um, Nigelhak took to court in government because of this penal code provision. Two gentlemen were taken to Coast General Hospital. They were forcefully examined the analysis to diagnose homosexuality. And they were accompanied pro-match there by police officers. And this actually really exposed a lot. That for a healthcare worker whose first calling is to do no harm, mm-hmm. to indignify an individual, mm-hmm. to expose an individual to such shame, to take away that right of an individual for privacy really made us question a lot. And this is the time now we started asking ourselves. We assume that our healthcare workers, now let me speak as a doctor, also doctors know all this information. Mm-hmm. It's actually wrong. But being taught a science, being taught the art of medicine does not assume that you actually know the human rights aspect of it. But I'll tell you for a fact, the attitudes are changing. Mm-hmm. The attitudes are completely changing because now we're integrating law and medicine. Okay. If you look at medicine alone, then you can find a way of ne- ne- negotiating and finding shortcuts. But when the law stands that there's no discrimination, mm-hmm. do not discriminate against anyone based on their sexuality. Health is a right. You as a duty bearer on behalf of the state, your work is to ensure preventive, promotive and curative care is available for Kenyans. Mm-hmm. That is your duty uh-huh. on behalf of the government at that particular point. So your work is not to discriminate. In fact, when you look at the rights, rights to health, Aside from ensuring they have systems, you have to ensure they're adequate. So your role would actually go towards raising questions, start asking, we don't have adequate healthcare workers, we don't have adequate commodities, we don't have adequate this, instead of now stigmatizing or discriminating this one individual. Um, So this is the view from the responsibility of a professional, taking it down to the personal level. How can we help everyday human beings, our ourselves, our brothers, our sisters, our families and communities to build the same kind of empathy? You know, and for you, I think you're somebody who has a lot of standing in our community. You know, you're not some foreigner who was dropped mm. from above. You're from Tani, Dani, Dani, you know, you're a Christian. Mm. You know, how? what is the message you have for our fellow community members who really struggle to have empathy for these issues. Using your platform as somebody who's, I'm from here, I'm mm-hmm. a Ranam's outsider. Mm-hmm. I see all of these different complicated pieces and I, I still stand for justice. What would you say to them? Let me, let me just, in two seconds, I'll tell you this. I'd initially mentioned that my mother was schizophrenic. My mother succumbed to HIV and AIDS in 2011. I mean, that's double stigma. Mm-hmm. That's double discrimination. So if you're not, so I know what what it means to be on the low end. Mm-hmm. I know what it means to be down there. I cannot speak on behalf of the transgender person who's been chased away from home. I cannot speak up on behalf of the gay man who has actually been physically assaulted for being gay. But I can tell you this. If you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're a Buddhist, whatever it is that you believe in, there's one principle that brings all these religions together, and that's humanity. Mm-hmm. But what is humanity? Humanity is love. That's why we keep saying love wins. We don't say same-sex relationship wins. Mm-hmm. We say love wins. Because that compassion deep inside your heart mm-hmm. is to look at someone differently and say, they're worth getting a job. They're worth getting healthcare. They're worth getting highest standards of education. They're worth having relationships. They're worth belonging. Mm-hmm. So don't don't take away your sons, your daughters, your 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 uncles, your aunties because because they say I am a lesbian or I'm a bisexual or I'm a transgender mm-hmm. because of who they choose to love. That's not your problem. 
Your problem is to ensure within the society, the moral fabrics of the society, mm-hmm. which the core should be love mm-hmm. and humanity, continues to bind everyone, irrespective of their gender identity. You're putting this so eloquently, and I'm really inspired by everything you're saying. And I, I really hope that the listeners out there are paying attention to what you said, because I think your voice and your moral standing and your passion is so compelling. This is really important work, and I'm so glad that you've overcome so much to do it. So in closing, this is Nairobi Ideas podcast. Uh, We try to close by asking our guests what their big idea is. And this is, I mean, of course, the fabric of your work is all big ideas. You know, you're fighting for pretty lofty ideals. But if you're even to kick it up to the highest level, the world that you dream of, what are you working towards at that highest level? Kenyans need to watch this space because I'm becoming the next UN General, Secretary General. (laughs) We have to change it from this state up there. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm heading. But looking at home right now, I've put together a fund. And this fund is towards working with Grassroots Foundation, a fundraiser and sub-guarantee organizations which work around mental health, sexual and productive health and education. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I find this to be the core that will hold and build the societies and make societies succeed. Education, reproductive health for young people, mental health that we are not discussing. So for the future, look out. Mm-hmm. We have the Celebo Syria Fund that is already in the pipeline. And come and speak to me. My Twitter handle is at last Siri. My Facebook page is Telabusiri. I am one very easy to reach person. Mm-hmm. Let me hear how I can support your work around that. Because we cannot talk about economic growth as we talk about in parliament or any other spaces. If we do not address the health of the population, mm-hmm. we have to address the health of the population. And health defined as broadly as possible and as, as inclusively as possible. As physical, social and mental well-being and not just the absence of disease. All right. Um, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you for taking the time. We are so proud of all the great work you're doing and you're an inspiration to us all. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. If you want to listen to this episode again, or if you want to hear more from the Nairobi Ideas podcast in the future, you can find us online permanently at www.mawazoinstitute.org. And for the next few weeks, you can also find us at www.africascienceweek-kenya.org. You can also subscribe to the Nairobi Ideas podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thank you to our sponsors, the L'Oreal Foundation, Johnson & Johnson Innovation, and the Next Einstein Forum. From all of us here at Mawazo Institute, thank you and keep it nerdy.